Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. If I lean a little bit on the, on the podium today, you'll understand it's uh, just a bit of a twinge in the back, which I'm trying to relieve. Hey, we've made it. We're at uh, Luke 24, the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And it's my privilege today just to open God's Word with you and look at one of the unique accounts that only Luke has. And it's the account of the road to Emmaus. We know it, uh, know it well. You know, last week we started Luke chapter 24 and we, we looked at the resurrection scene that was there before the woman who had gone to the tomb. We saw that as they arrived at the tomb that two significant things had occurred. Firstly, the body which they had seen laying in the tomb two days earlier was no longer there. And secondly, the stone had been rolled away. And then two angels had revealed to them that Jesus was alive. Luke doesn't record them seeing Jesus. He just records that these angels spoke to them. I said, dude, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is risen. He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you he would. While you're still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. And then we see the testimony of the writer saying, the woman got it. They remembered his words. You could say they they were moved from what was concealed to what was revealed. Even though they had physically not seen Jesus at this point in time, they had what had been concealed to them. The mystery of the resurrection was now being revealed to them by angelic witness. And they went home and they told the eleven, they told the apostles. And we looked at this last week and as they told them, the apostles' initial response was, oh, that's just idle talk. It's tittle-tattle. Actually, the word that Luke uses, being a doctor, was unique to the Greek New Testament here. And he said it's the sort of dribble that goes on when someone is sort of delirious and is very, very unwell. This is what the apostles were thinking. But, but, Peter rose, went to the tomb, stooping, he looked down and he saw what had happened. And he marveled. And he marveled. Let's read today's passage. We're going to start in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, the resurrection day, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, or 11 kilometers. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. 
While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some woman of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they had not found his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. So they drew near to a village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going on farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road while he opened the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Don't know about you, but uh, one of my favourite times of the year is uh, Christmas time. I remember fondly as a child, I I would uh, eagerly look underneath the Christmas tree. You know, in our tradition, we, we give presents and things on Christmas Day, right? And I'm sure everyone has experienced that in this room. But were you a child like me? Were you a child that would sneak out in the middle of the night and, and sort of sneakily get towards that tree and marvel at all the shapes of the gifts that were under the tree? 
You might not have only just looked at the shapes, you might have actually gone over and touched them. You might have moved the shape around in your hands trying to guess what was in the prison. My parents used to solve this problem quite quickly because they just put everything in a box. So when you felt a box, it was a box. You didn't know what was in the box. It was just a box. But then Christmas morning you would unwrap that wrapping and what was concealed was now revealed. What you thought might have been there may not have been there. You know, a a prized possession like a New Zealand rugby ball. You know, something that as a child that you would sleep with. You don't need teddy bears, you need rugby balls, you know. But you know, that was concealed in a box, so you couldn't tell it was a ball, but when, when you opened the box up, what was revealed was the prize of your dreams. Or you could be a bit like me. I'm a, I'm a little bit sneaky when it comes to uh, wedding anniversaries and things like that. You may not think I'm a romantic, but deep down I actually am. You may think this toughest exterior is, can't be melted by the love of my life, my bride. But what I love doing year in, year out is come anniversary time, I, I love planning something to do. And we actually are celebrating our wedding anniversary this next week and Julie has no idea what's going on. I'm glad I do. <laughs> so I imagine at the moment she is just anticipating with great excitement this week. And, um, but you know, what is concealed at the moment will start to be revealed tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. It's a significant anniversary for us, so it's going to take a week to reveal all. But what is currently concealed will not be revealed until tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. <laughs> and this is sort of what's going on here in the story. And let's pick the story up again, and I'm just going to break it up into parts for you. We have the setting, which is described in these first verses 13 through 16. We have two men going to the village named Emmaus. This is a short distance from Jerusalem. It was a couple of hour walk. Um, Our versions tell us seven miles or 11 kilometers, something like that. And sistering, as they are going, they are talking. They're talking with each other. And this dialogue is not just a quiet dialogue. The the word that's used here for the dialogue that they are enjoying is quite expressive, quite emotional and expressive type dialogue going on between these two. It would be probably like an Italian wedding, you know. I'll put that into context. We all have Italian friends here in this lovely city of Melbourne. And when weddings happen, there's great excitement and great emotion and great dialogue and lots of kissing and hugging and all those good things that Italian weddings have. That's the type of noise and things going on between these two as they were walking and talking. It was an expressive talking. They were concerned about the events that have happened in the previous three days. They'd obviously been to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. 
They'd seen the events that had happened. They were followers of Jesus. We know that from later in the dialogue because they said they'd received a report from the woman. So they were part of that larger group. They weren't the apostles. They were two other disciples of Jesus. And they were dialoguing and talking. And it's wonderful, isn't it? Because as they're talking, Jesus comes to them. He drew near to them, verse 15, and he went with them. And it's uh, significant, verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is another one of these, as I've talked about in the last couple of weeks, a divine passive. Who's keeping their eyes from Jesus? God. Jesus' real identity is being concealed by God. God is holding back the revelation of who Jesus is. There would, however, come a time when the disciples would clearly see. But in, the, in their current uncertainty, in, their, in this current time and point, God still had things to teach them, so he was concealing who Jesus was. And then a conversation erupts. Verse 17 through 24, we have this conversation. We have Jesus who answers two questions, asks two questions, sorry. And then we have Cleopas, who's one of the, the guys walking to Emmaus, who's uh, named here, responding to the questions. We're not sure of who the other fellow is. We're not even sure. You know, Cleopas, this is the only place in the New Testament this uh, gentleman is named. So we know very little about him, other than he was going to Emmaus on the day of resurrection, and he was with another, another bloke, and Jesus drew near to him. And so Jesus proceeds to ask the very first question in verse 17. What is this conversation that you're having with each other as you walk? And you can just imagine the scene. They're, they're walking together. Jesus is drawn near. Now there's three of them. And what do they do? They stop. Don't miss the significance of that. They're walking they stand still and they're looking pretty miserable and sad. And then Cleopas answers him, almost answers him in disbelief. He said, are you the only guy in Jerusalem? Have you got your head in the sand? Don't you know what's gone on in the past three days? Don't you know the things that have happened here? How's that for irony? Don't you know? Uh, yeah, I do have some idea, but I'll reveal that a little bit later. Don't you understand? The whole city has been in turmoil for these three days. 
So Cleopas just cannot believe that anyone who was coming out of Jerusalem as they were did not know what had happened. This is part of Luke's technique. He's to provide a witness to Theophilus. Remember right back at the start, this book is written to a person to provide Theophilus with a certainty of the things about Christ. And he builds this and he says, this is certain. Cleopas says, how do you not know? Large multitudes knew what was going on. Large multitudes know what's going on. And then he explains, he gives a very quick summary to Jesus' second question. His first question is, what's the conversation you're having? What's this emotional dialogue that I've heard as I heard as I drew near? And the second question is a very simple thing is what things? What things happened in Jerusalem? I just love the irony. <laughs> it's just as I read, I just love what's going on here. What things? And Cleopas said concerning Jesus of Nazareth. This is what our conversation is about. It's about Jesus of Nazareth. And he starts describing Jesus. He said he was a prophet, and this alludes back to earlier parts of Luke, Luke chapter 4. If you turn back there with me, you'll you'll see that Jesus even, as he picked up the the scroll in the synagogue of Nazareth, as he read from Isaiah 61 right back and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Verse 18. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He set as liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he shut the scroll, he put it down and said, that's what I'm here for. And then he continues to dialogue with these guys and he says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So Jesus claimed himself to be a prophet. These disciples knew that. They said he was a prophet because this is what he expounded in Luke chapter 4 at the start of his ministry and right throughout his ministry. It's testified that he is a prophet, mighty in deed and word. They're the two things that these disciples focus in on. The reason we know he is a great prophet is because he's mighty indeed in word. He healed the sick. He healed the crippled. He gave sight to the blind. He did the things that he said he would do from Luke chapter 4. That's the deed side of it. And he was mighty in word. As you've surveyed Luke, how many times do you see Jesus proclaiming the word? With accuracy with intent, right through the parables. The lessons that are learned there are based on the word of God. So Cleopas was just testifying to the fact that we have seen this in action. He was possibly there right from the start, I don't know, but at some point in time he's come to faith in Jesus. He's talking about this and he says, we know that he was definitely a prophet mighty in deed and word. 
before God and for, before all the people. So that's the first part of the summary. Second part, he says, however, our rulers and our priests gave him up to be crucified. He used this really interesting term, delivered up or handing over. So the, the Cleopas is very implicit in saying that this tragedy of his crucifixion is the hands of the people, the hands of the nation. The passive side of it is the Romans. They completed the execution, but the active part was that the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up. And as we discussed, by the definite plan of God. Acts 2, 22. And then Cleopas looks and says, we really hoped this guy was going to be our redeemer. We hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. We hoped that he was the Messiah. So clearly in, in their minds there was a real wrestle with this. They'd heard the words, they saw the deeds of Jesus and they could not correlate between what had gone on and who the Messiah was to be. And they continue the conversation and then give a very summarized version of the three days. They say, moreover, the woman have come and told us that, and they amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. I summarized there was an empty tomb, but we don't understand that either. These travelers are, are not impressed by the, the woman's report. They're only astonished by it. And I reckon that here they are representing perplexed doubters. Say that again, I reckon they're representing perplexed doubters. They were wondering what happened to the body. They were perplexed by what has gone on. They did not understand because things had not been revealed. They are perplexed but not convinced by the testimony of the woman. And it's just a beautiful irony yet again, is it not? It's these two men who are walking on the road to Emmaus with Jesus beside them. They do not know who he is. And the very de decisive evidence that they were seeking, we want to see the Lord, they could not recognize. Why? Because God 
chose to keep their eyes shut. At this point in time. And then Jesus responds. Verse 25. And it's not a gentle response. This is something that sort of uh, I really was quite surprised about. As I was starting through this week, I thought, oh, Jesus would have graciously and very pastorally got beside these guys and responded in a very loving way. But no, he actually gives a fairly stern rebuke. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones. Oh, foolish ones. Now, yeah, that sort of rolls off our tongue. And um, I would paraphrase it, oh, foolish, dense, short-sighted ones. That would be the force of what the language is saying here. Oh, foolish ones. Why are you foolish? There's a couple of reasons he gives here. You are slow of heart to believe all the things that the prophets have spoken. So there's two aspects thing. It's a heart issue. The reason you don't recognize who I am is because of your heart. The reason you don't recognize what I've done is because you haven't understood the prophets. And this is a very sort of Luke theme as he goes through the Gospel of Luke as we've, we've talked through this. And then he just gives them the answer. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his, into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Would have you like to have been there for that? <laughs> I'll put my hand up. I think I would have liked to have been there for that. I probably wouldn't have liked to have been called foolish and stubborn and, and things like that, but the the next part of the reality would have been absolutely amazing. As Jesus grabbed the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets and the writings, and he revealed to them the thing that they did not understand about the Messiah, that he was to be a suffering Messiah. A suffering Messiah. Now, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here with this particular aspect of interpretation. It's not too far in a limb. It's not heresy or anything like that, but I think this needs to be something to be thought about. What did he actually explain and from what scriptures? Does the text tell us? Not really. The text tells us that the scriptures that he uses to explain that he must suffer and enter into his glory or enter into the, the right hand of the Father. This is, a, this is entering into the glory reflects a majesty and an authority. Okay? It's the majesty and authority of Jesus that he was entering into. It means a reception into a heavenly authority. Here the emphasis is on Jesus' position and authority, not just his coming to life. 
being at the right hand of God. If I go back to the question, so what did Jesus explain to them? The text tells us he explained right from the beginning, from Moses and all the prophets, things concerning himself. That's a key thing. He used all of the scripture to explain the things that related to him, the things that were fulfilled in him, the prophecies that were fulfilled in him. So, for instance, if you went and took some obscure text in Leviticus about keeping the law, that's probably not what Jesus explained in this context. Because it wasn't directly related to concerning him. So he sat down and gave them the greatest piece of biblical theology ever known to mankind. And as you read through Acts, actually, you get some key texts that keep jumping out that are used in the, in the book of Acts. The same writer, Deuteronomy 18 and 15, write this down. Psalm 2, 7. Psalm 16, 8 to 11. Psalm 110, 1. Psalm 118. Isaiah 53. That's what Luke later uses on to declare who Jesus was from the Old Testament in the book of Acts. I think they were significant in what he actually displayed and taught these men. But his sole focus was to say, hey, the political Messiah that you were wanting, that's not the picture. I've told you on three or four occasions that I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer, I must die, and I will be raised again on the third day as the prophets have said. Verse 28. So they arrived in Emmaus. And it's interesting here, Jesus sort of acts, oh, I'm just going to carry on. And I can just imagine the pleading, no, please stay with us. We are really quite enjoying this Bible lesson. We are really enjoying what you are saying. We are, we, are, we are starting to understand. Things are starting to move from being concealed to being revealed. Just stay with us. It's evening. So he went in and stayed with them. And he sat down and he took the bread and blessed it. He broke it and he gave it to them. Simple meal. He just shared a meal. We're not talking a Passover meal here. There's no wine. It's just a simple meal. It's not a sacramental meal. Just a simple meal. They were hungry. They'd been walking for 11 kilometers. Also attests to the fact that Jesus has bodily been raised. He's eating. It's no spirit. Physically, he is there and he's eating. He's sharing this bread with them. And their eyes were opened. This is another wonderful divine passive. We've talked about these recently, haven't we? 
The first one today was their eyes were kept from recognising him. But now their eyes are open. God has opened their eyes and they recognised him. And he vanished from their sight. At that point in time, they have moved from concealment to revealment. Their hearts have been filled with a knowledge and a recognition of who the Messiah is and what the significance of the cross was. And then they turn to each other and they state these things. Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? It's an amazing thing, isn't it? When we open God's word together, when we learn together, when we are convicted by God's spirit, doesn't our heart burn within us? As we see new truth, as we see a glimpse of God's great love for us and his great justice, that he even called us to be his. Don't ever become familiar with this book and just place it on the shelf. The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing the soul and training us in righteousness. Folks, to be a disciple of Jesus is to take this seriously. Take his word seriously. To be shaped by it on a daily basis. To move from things that are concealed to things that are revealed through the power of his spirit. Notice who's doing the revealing here. It's God and God alone. And that happens with us. You may be sitting here and you may not understand this. Cry out to the Lord. Ask him to reveal it to you. Because he's the only one that saves. He's the only one that saves. Call out in repentance. For your life of the life that is separated from him. Call out for revelation that your eyes may be opened. So you may understand the depths of his grace and love for you. And respond. These guys responded. They responded in several ways. They responded with a personal testimony. Didn't our hearts burn as we learnt these things? And then they rose up immediately and decided to, you know that old song, I will walk 500 miles? And I will walk 500 more? This is what these guys did. Not 500 miles, but they walked 11 kilometres one way and then they walked 11 kilometres back the other way. They were excited about what they heard. They wanted to get back to the disciples and attest to them Jesus is alive. 
You know, you may have heard the testimony Jesus is alive. You may have seen that the stone had been rolled away. You have not seen him. We have. He was with us. I don't know if it was a leisurely walk or a, or a power walk, but at the minimum he's going to be there for at least a couple of hours talking with them. We have seen him. What was concealed is now revealed. We understand that he had to die for our sin. We understand that. And we understand he had to be raised again on the third day, and now he's in glory, in a position of authority and power at his, at his father's right hand. He is the Messiah. We just got it wrong. We didn't understand it was a suffering Messiah, and he suffered for me. So they go back, they return to Jerusalem, they find the eleven and that those that were gathered together. So once again, we've still got this group dynamic in Luke 24. It's not just three women, it's a group of women, plus the 11, plus some other disciples, of which these guys were two of, because they went to Emmaus and came back. And they gave the testament, he has risen indeed. And Simon's also seen this. So I think this is, this here is a, in the original language, really difficult to actually work around the grammar in here. Probably the best way of describing this is that there's a, a duplicate testimony going on here. Simon's in amongst that group, right? He's part of the 11, Simon Peter. These guys say, the Lord has risen. And Simon says, yeah, he's appeared to me as well. That's the intent of what's going on here. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They were known to him, them as a deep knowing. It's a thing that's been revealed by God and God alone that they saw for the first time the suffering servant, the Messiah, had brought salvation and redemption. So this is the second scene of the resurrection narrative for Luke. The first scene, there was no body. The second scene, he has now appeared. He's fellowshiped with these men. The third scene, I'm just going to read very briefly and very little comment. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood amongst them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Same situation, isn't it? As, the, as he addressed the guys on the road to Emmaus, he said, You're slow of heart. He's, he's addressing the apostles in the same way. Why are there, is there doubt in your heart? See my hands, verse 39, and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones if you, as you see that I have. Once again, a testimony to witness the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So law, the prophets, and the writings, all of the Old Testament scriptures, they all testify to the fact that I must be a suffering Messiah. And get the next verse because this is incredibly important. Because these apostles moved from a place of concealment to a place of revealment. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Just like it happened on the road to Emmaus with the two, now the eleven had their minds opened by the Lord of the universe to the fact that he was the suffering Messiah. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed the power from on high. Next year we're going to pick that up as we start a study in, in Acts. But you see in chapter 24 here, on three occasions you have the promise stated and the fulfillment seen. The promise was, I must go to Jerusalem, I must die, I must be buried and I'll rise again. On three occasions, the angels said it, Jesus said it to the guys on the road to Emmaus, and then he says it to the eleven. This is what scripture says about me. And God is faithful to his promise. Take that as great encouragement. As you've worked through the gospel, the Gospel of Luke, I hope you've been challenged about your own discipleship and your own position before the Lord and how you serve him. There are many instructions there, and I'd love you to, this week just to flick through some of the lessons you've learned and saying, this is what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. Take those things and meditate upon them. Realize that these things are done in the power of the Spirit as you follow Him. Ask the Lord to reveal to your minds and to your hearts to understand afresh the depths of the truths of His Word. And rejoice in the fact that He has risen. Did it last week. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Three testimonies from three different sources. A group of women, two men on the road to Emmaus, 11 apostles, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Theophanus, if you want further proof, I'll write to you a little bit more in the book of Acts. But O Theophanus, these things are certain. He is risen. And our faith is based on that fact. Just in closing, I trust that individually each one of you here 
Christ has revealed himself to you. I trust that you're not in a place that is of concealment. Well, you may have all the facts, you may come in here week in, week out, but you don't know him. Search for him, seek for him. Repent of your need for him. Cry out to him to reveal himself to you. He is faithful to his promise. I invite the music team up as we sing our last song.